1: Father, I am mindful in new ways even this morning of how dependent upon You we are for life and breath and for everything. And I thank You even for how in the last few minutes You have, uh, I think, touched us in a, a different spirit to move us. Lord, feelings are fickle. But I think, Lord, You have come to this place here today to bind us to Christ. And I pray that you would do that. And that you would give us a sense of that. A feeling of it. Not that feelings are our master. Feelings are fickle. But Lord that you are. You are real. And being real. You can be met with. And met with we would be stirred, we would be moved. So I pray, Lord, that You, the real God, would come and be met with here now by people and that You would move us to follow You. That You would draw us to, bind, to, to, to a binding with You, to a union with You that is fresh and new and deeper. We pray to you for this because you're the one who gives it. We are dependent on you for all things in life. We cannot make it happen ourselves. I cannot make it happen. Only you can. And so we ask you, Father, to send your spirit here to this place in this moment to open up your word, to illuminate, it, and to cause it to run in our lives and to meet us in it, to fellowship with us over your truth And Lord, while there is some in this that is at first hard and is in the end sobering, there is some of that in this, but please, Father, as you meet with us over it, would you show us the beauty of what you have sent to us in Christ crucified? Illumine that glorious truth far beyond my ability to speak it, to express it, to enunciate it. Far beyond our ability to read it in English on the page. Father, by your Spirit, illumine Christ crucified, glorious and beautiful and mighty, good for us. Your loving kindness, mercifully expressed. Illumine that for us. Give us deep conviction of it. That's what draws us on after you, Father. Please show that to us. Move us to follow your decrees. Move us to follow your decrees. We look to you for that work here in our midst, Father. Give clarity to the scripture. Open up our hearts and deal with us and move us on after you. Meet with us and move us, please. It's in Christ's name and for Christ's glory and for the good of his people, I pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Luke chapter 6 and the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's taken us a number of weeks to get to this final paragraph. Having followed the sermon all through its its three main sections according to how Luke presents it to us, we began with Jesus talking about blessings and curses, beatitudes, matching woes, and he speaks those to us to prepare us, to tune our, our minds, tune our hearts towards something future, to point us ahead at where God meets us to bless, to reward. He wants to shape our hearts now because He knows the second section, the heart of the sermon, is going to be hard. In the middle, then, the second section, he tells us what the character of a disciple is like. Character of disciples who follow Jesus, those who follow him are like him. We are to love others, particularly love our enemies those who don't like us, those who are difficult or unattractive in some way, those who, who reject us, who curse us, who in some way do us wrong, we who are followers of Jesus are to turn the other cheek, to, to take it, and to stand there subject to humility yet again. Now, again and again and again, we said, we pointed out the importance of being wise and of understanding many particular applications, because while we are called to love, while we are called to do good, sometimes doing good involves confronting There's much wisdom involved in all that. But never mind how much we say there's wisdom involved in it, the the bottom line is that that's a hard, high calling. To love others, particularly hard people, is hard. And he calls us to that and and will not let us get away from it. We are called to follow Jesus, to be followers of him. As he moves into the third section, as we saw last week, he explains where such following is originates where it comes from comes from the heart last week's passage verses 43 to 45 explained the basic connection between life that's lived and where it comes from inside life from the inside flows to the outside and we are to follow Jesus we are to be followers of his bearing fruit on the outside and that means we need to attend to our hearts on the inside particularly That comes about by growing in conviction of God's love for us in Christ. That's the work of the Spirit of God in us, to press into us and to convince us deeply that God, our Father, is a God of kindness and of mercy and of love towards His people in Christ. That's you if you're a Christian. And convinced of that, the heart changes and fruit comes out. That was last week. And it prepares us for the final paragraph, one more exhortation, encouraging us to follow Jesus, a call to obedience. And he presents it mostly in the form of a parable. And as, as we get into this paragraph, this whole paragraph, verses 46 to the end, what we'll see is that what starts out, particularly with the first sentence, what starts out kind of kind of confrontational. Kind of uh, in your face a little bit. which starts out like that. It turns, and we find that it's not really, in fact, a scolding or, or a, a power play of some sort. It really, in fact, is a warning, which comes from a heart that's concerned. So you've got to kind of see that on the surface, there's, there's some of this, and there's some, some difficult imagery. But why that's here The heart that wrote it, the heart that presents it to us, is a heart that's concerned for us. So it comes to us from care. It comes to us from kindness. In fact, from love. It's a plea to us from Jesus that we who listen face reality and deal with the reality that's out there, that we're going to encounter, that we deal with it in the only way that works, the only way to avoid a great danger as we walk through this world of storms. So if it sounds hard at first, hang with it and think, why did he tell me it's because he loves me and he's warning me? So we're going to consider verses 46 to 49 and look at two observations from this passage, but let me read it first and then draw up the two observations. The conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But, The one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The end of the sermon, from which I'll draw two observations. Here's the first Jesus requires genuine obedience. not just formal, professed allegiance. Jesus requires genuine obedience and not just something that we say, something that we profess, not just something that's formal in, in structure, in an appearance. Not just formal, professed allegiance, he wants obedience. He begins with this rhetorical question that has, that has a bit of a, of, a, of a punch in it, an edge to it, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He's speaking to a large crowd of disciples. Remember, the audience here are, are self-professing disciples, followers of his. People who call him Lord, even endearingly or convincingly so. That, that emphasis there in the double repetition, Lord, Lord. People who say, I know, there are some who follow John the Baptist, and there are some who follow that rabbi, and some who follow those disciples, and that, those whatever, I, as for me, this one, Jesus is my Lord. There's, there's a clear affiliation there, an affirmation out of the mouth, I'm with him, Lord, Lord. And so what we have here in this paragraph is a sobering reality. Jesus is confronting not the world. There's another group of people. All those from the various nations are all gathered around, and it's as if here in this very particular moment, Jesus says, never mind them. I'm talking to people who profess me, Lord, Lord. Profess faith in me. He's talking to the church. And he's about to, to expose a divide within the church community. Two people, two different types of people here. Those who call him Lord and don't do what he says... And the implied opposite, those who call him Lord and do do what he says. Two different groups here. Jesus is about to illumine both of these different groups. It's implied there in the first verse and, of course, further illustrated in the parable, verses 47 to 49. Two men, each building a house, verse 47, one of them illustrating those who come to Jesus, who hear his words and do them. The second man, verse 49, illustrating those who come and hear and don't do them. There's the two groups. Illustrated in this parable. If we look at the parable and think about these two guys, we'll understand a little more about these two groups. Obviously, we read this, there's a big difference in the two houses. We'll talk about that eventually here. But a large part of the point is the similarity in the two houses. There are two guys who both build a house in the same area. They're described as if they're standing right next to each other when this stream comes and hits them, when this flood comes. They're both right there, and we are meant to be reading this and and seeing them as, from our viewpoint, essentially indistinguishable. The difference is not one was made out of brick and one was made out of wood. The difference is not one was a two-story and one was a one-story. Not even one was built wisely not in the floodplain and one was vulnerable in the floodplain. None of those are differences. So what we're supposed to come to this is say, here are two men who do the same thing they build a house in the same place and they end up with essentially the same thing, the same product. Both of them formally, to move from the analogy to the reality that Jesus is confronting, both of them formally saying, Lord, Lord. They look alike. Both of them, regular attenders of the church, voluntarily present. Both hear of their own accord in the worship service, both serving in the ministries of the church, helping in the kitchen, leading a service project, organizing a retreat, giving money. They more or less both agree with the doctrines of Jesus that they here taught. They came and they heard, and they're still there. They're agreeing about what righteous behavior would be, about what good, right living is, what it looks like. They agree that Jesus is the only way to be saved. They would would affirm that. They want that for themselves. That's why they're still here. They're still connected. They grant allegiance and they show a formal affiliation. They're on the membership roll. They're on the email list. They get the the e-link. The point of this all is that if you look at those two houses, just like as you look across the congregation assembled, you can't tell the difference. Now, yeah, difference here and there, but essentially the same, indistinguishable to the outside observer. You cast an eye over the whole church, or the whole congregation, the local congregation, or, or any other group of assembled Christians somewhere. You look at, at a Christian school community, and as you look at them just from the outside They look basically the same. But they are different. And a closer look would reveal that. Particularly a closer look by you yourself at you yourself. Which is why the paragraph is here. This paragraph is the end of the sermon. Because it's calling you to look at you. calling each of us to look at ourselves personally and realize that what Jesus requires from us is genuine obedience from the heart, not just a formal connection and a a verbal affirmation, a professed agreement. So examine yourself. Think about this. Is your relationship to Jesus Primarily based upon something that is formal, official, external. The place where you worship. The faith of your parents. Of your spouse. Habit. History. Do You look back at your history and you find yourself saying, I'm a Christian because... Back then, I prayed that prayer. Back then, I walked that aisle. I signed that card. I got baptized. I joined the church. I stood up and said, from this day forward, Jesus is my Savior and Lord. I will call Him Lord, Lord from now on. Now, carefully, none of that in and of itself is wrong. It's not wrong to get baptized, it's not wrong to join the church, it's not wrong to profess Jesus as Lord. It's not wrong to have a family history of of being in the Christian faith. It's not wrong to go to a Christian school, it's not wrong to attend a church. None of that in itself is wrong, but the whole question is, is that what your connection to Jesus is based upon? Is that what you grab hold of? Because that in itself does not indicate is there what is there or is there anything beneath that down in the ground on the inside in the heart Jesus gets at the issue of what's on the inside what's down in the ground if you will and he does as he does so he kind of helps us this is what we should be thinking about this might seem odd at first but I have to work through why this is telling his focus is on what do you do Well, you just said what I do. I go to church. I got baptized. I mean, no, different. What do you do when you hear the word of Jesus? The One who hears my word and does them, in contrast to the one who hears and does not do them. He requires obedience. So is this you? This is a true disciple. Is this you? When Jesus says, love your enemies. When Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. When he commands you to bless those who curse you. To turn the other cheek towards those who, who take advantage of you, to pour abundant good into their laps. When you hear that, what do you do? Genuine disciples do what He tells them to do. Genuine disciples. Do not reject that as too hard and absurd. Genuine disciples do not rationalize that away. Well, if you knew how my spouse really was, if you knew what that person really said to me, if you saw that, that's not reasonable for a person in this situation. Do you see the bar goes goes high and it stays high? He says, you do it. Is that hard? Absolutely. And a genuine disciple says, I do that, and then immediately realizes, oh, no, I don't. No, I don't. What you're looking for is, is my inclination of in my heart to turn away from that and to try to relieve myself of it and say, well, it's not really me here now. Or is it to say, no, that is me. Oh, and I fail at it. And a genuine disciple, in that moment of failure, does something else critical, says, Oh God, humble and poor in spirit, I realize, as Jesus taught in his word, I realize my weakness and my failing, and I long, I hunger for greater righteousness in me, and I mourn at my inability to keep your word. Oh God, help me, change me, conform me, work in my heart, make me different. That's the inclination, the bent of a true disciple. I must, he calls me to, and I can't help me. Is that you? Look at your heart. What do you do? The professing believer, the one who only has a formal connection, says, ah, that's too hard. I will make an easier path that is high, I will chart a lower course. I will love reasonably. This call about obedience, this this targeting of how do we respond, particularly in the very hardest situations, this call is particularly helpful because in those moments of calling us to obedience, it reveals what's, remember last week's passage, It reveals, it shows the fruit that will then enable me to trace back to my heart and figure out what's actually in here. I can't see in here. I can see here. Look at the fruit. Is obedience to his word growing in your life and where it isn't is the inclination of your heart to run to him and say, oh God, help me. Change me. Bear fruit through my life like you require, or is it to run away from it and to attempt to relieve yourself of the obligation? This is extremely helpful because it shows us what's in here in the heart, which ultimately, follow this, ultimately shows you what you believe, in whom you trust. That's why Jesus is after obedience. That's why he puts obedience front and center. Because obedience shows us where I'm banking my life, the one in whom I trust. It shows me, do I actually believe him when he says, great will be your reward in heaven? Or does my heart instinctively say, "Mm, I don't buy it, nope. I will search for my reward here on earth. The obedience or disobedience shows your heart, that is, shows where you believe, shows whom you trust. We're not talking here about a works salvation. Do the right thing and you will be saved. We're talking about works, fruit, as the revelation of the heart, which is the revelation of the faith that's actually true of you, not just what you say. Fruit shows the tree. Fruit shows your faith. So this call to obedience is extremely helpful for us because it reveals us. So look at yourself. Are you obedient to the word of Jesus? And of course, the answer has to be Not completely. And when you aren't obedient to the word of Jesus, are you still obedient to the word of Jesus and that you run to him and say, you, Lord, I believe you are the one who is merciful to me in Christ, that you forgive me in Christ, that I don't stand condemned before you in Christ. I believe your word and I obey it. I come running to you for forgiveness and I come running to you for strengthening of my heart, strengthening of my hands that I may then do. Look at yourself. Are you obedient to the Word of Jesus in all that He commands? A genuine believer is. There is a pattern in your life. What is it? There is a leaning, an inclination. Is it towards obedience? And is it towards... Forgiveness and empowerment from Christ for obedience. Or is the leaning in your heart away from obedience towards rationalization and towards relief? Now, one aside, if you weren't here last week, I talked about this concept of apple nailing, an illustration that somebody, Paul Tripp, mentions. An apple tree that doesn't produce fruit, the wrong way to solve that is go buy apples and nail them to the tree. That hasn't actually changed anything. And all that I've said here so far could be misunderstood by you just going out and apple nailing, attempting to nail more apples to your tree and do good, do good, do good, do good, do good. good. No, you're gaming the system. The fruit is just revealing of the heart. The fruit is not the focus. Jesus focuses us on fruit because that's all we can see. But you are supposed to say, I look at the fruit, and really I'm trying to trace that back to here. So don't game the system and just try to to act better. Try try harder to be better. That's an important aside because we, we can misunderstand that. But look instead at the leaning of your heart. Jesus wants obedience. Do you want obedience? Do you want holiness? Do you want, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? And do you mourn and weep at the lack of it in your life? Not out there amongst other people, in your own life. And do you come to Jesus and say, Lord, build that in me, change me, grow me? Is that the leaning of your heart? Examine yourself. Jesus requires not just formal allegiance. I'm talking to everybody here because the whole point is that as you look across the congregation on the surface, you can't tell. You, look at your heart. Look at obedience. You can tell something about yourself. And particularly, let me put this in front of you guys who are teenagers. I heard this thing this last week. I heard a couple folks talking here in the hallways in, some, in a conversation here about this statistic that I, I bet many of us have heard. 80% of Christian kids lose their faith when they go off to college. Anybody heard that? Totally untrue. Totally untrue. Let's keep the number 80. Who knows if that's the right percentage. of formally connected Christian kids reveal their real faith when they go off to college. That's true. Understand the difference. Critical difference. You teenagers who are sitting here, you are formally connected. You're in the building. You're part of a Christian environment. Some of you go to a Christian school. You are formally connected. And what we're going to find out when you go away to college and the formal connections are snipped, we're going to find out what you actually believe. The answer then is not, well, when I go to college, I better get formally connected again to another church somewhere. No, the answer is right now turn to Jesus and get genuinely connected to him right now. For teenagers, that's that's you. For all of us, that's that's true for all of us. So many of us. The, the, The reality of this church environment you think, well, this is a great church. I'm a part of a good church. I'm okay. Maybe. I can't tell from looking at you. What's the inclination of your heart? Bent towards obedience and bent towards Christ for the empowering of obedience and for the forgiving of disobedience. Is that the bent of your heart? This is all important and it sounds, initially it sounds kind of like he's getting after you and calling you a fake. The second point tells us why this is important and reveals it is his goodness The degree to which he gets after you is his goodness to you. Because of the second point. This is not a rebuke. It's a discussion about need. Here's the second point. The disobedient are without Christ and are vulnerable to devastating danger. The disobedient are without Christ and are vulnerable to devastating danger. Considering the parable again, obviously we, we've seen that part of the point is that the houses look so similar from the outside, but there is one gigantic difference, of course. Verse 48 the obedient man, and the language has a repetitive way here of expressing something. He dug and he deepened and he laid the foundation on rock. And the other guy didn't. He just put it on the ground. One could be forgiven for wanting to skip the foundation part because that's a whole ton of work. It's hard. It costs you a lot. You're just going to cover it up anyway. And the other guy already has his structure up and he at a third of the cost and he saved his back. Let's just skip this part. looks the same until the flood comes and the flood breaks against both houses alike what they would have had in their mind here, remember this is the Sermon on the Mount they are in a mountainous region so they would have had in their mind something that we would call a flash flood what's a little mountain stream suddenly turns to a raging torrent And it breaks against both houses unexpectedly, and immediately, verse 49, immediately, all of a sudden, foundational realities are revealed. Everything's revealed. And one house stands strong, and the other immediately it falls and is utterly, totally ruined. Great. Now, the way you could render that is spectacular was the ruin of that house. Destruction. Total destruction. Ruin. That's the punchline, which tells us something about the tone. This is not this the tone of this paragraph is not Jesus saying, Why are you so hypocritical? Not the tone. The tone is: you live in danger. It's raining. Don't you realize what that means? It's already raining. I like the rain. It's a beautiful stream. You don't get it. In a half an hour, that's going to sweep your house away. That's the tone. Why do you persist in refusing a foundation? Not because I'm ticked off that you refuse me, but because you're about to die. That's the tone. Absolutely it costs you to build the foundation. If you're going to listen to the words of Jesus here and turn in obedience and turn to him for forgiveness of your disobedience towards the empowerment of more obedience, if you're going to turn to love enemy, it's going to cost you a ton. It's going to cost you all kinds of dignity and all kinds of resources and all kinds of time. It is costly. It is work. It will sap your resources and it will drain you. Yes, it will. And broadly speaking, beyond just the the call to love enemy, he, of course, wants obedience to all of his commands and all of life his word touches every aspect of all of our life, sometimes in direct command, sometimes in principle. It touches everything. It speaks to all of life. And very often we will find that what God's word says and what our inclination and what our feelings and what our desires are are at odds with one another. And to turn our lives towards him will cost us and will be hard. It will be mm, in some way dissatisfactory. You wish you didn't have to. You won't want to. Absolutely, it'll cost you. He dug down deep and deepened and then laid the foundation on rock. It was work. But it's raining right now. And the storms of life will come against you, a flood will strike your house. Just very practically speaking, at the, at the simplest, lowest level, his instruction, because it touches all of life and comes from the one who is wise and who made everything and knows how it works, his instruction is a lamp to your feet and the light for your path. And to try to walk through the world in darkness leads to misery. He knows how it works, he tells you how it works. And when difficulties arise and you embark on your own wisdom and try to work through a world that you don't understand and can't control apart from his wisdom, you will find trouble. Not only will life not work, but then if you move to a second level, you will have found trouble without him. Like the prodigal son who departed and went into the foreign land, he found trouble without his father. It is one thing to make life work, but of course we know sometimes life doesn't work because evil is. And when in this life we face evil and we face people who are in fact enemies of us, and we can't charm them into being other. They remain enemies. It is hard. It is, it is sad. It is destructive of soul to face that without Christ. To face that without a dear Savior near to you. And in fact, at a third level, does that not, whenever we walk away from God in disobedience, does that not invite discipline from him? Indeed it does. Sometimes that discipline comes in a rush and sometimes it takes time. David and Bathsheba. David was doing just fine for about a year or so. And then he wasn't. He walked into disobedience And what he found, there was a storm that broke on him. His house was nearly destroyed. Such discipline may come to you. And it may not. Truth be told, sometimes... You can walk through life in disobedience and be clever enough and strong enough and in the right place at the right time enough that things work out and you control all the people who would be evil to you and so you don't suffer too much under their hand and, and the discipline of God never seems to come. What then? Jesus is is certainly making, uh, wanting us to think about the troubles of life and all of those things I was just enumerating. But at the end of all of them, the, the focal point here, when you use words like flood and total destruction, he means to press this upon us. It is appointed for man and woman once to die and then to face judgment. What then? What then? I skated through life and it was awesome. And I had my way with everything. I triumphed over people and I lived at the top. And you died and you faced judgment. This is the true thrust of the parable, the sudden flood of judgment the total ruin of the house when people and houses and cars and barns are caught in raging flash flood waters they are not dinged and dented and injured they are swept away and lost this is the incredibly sober note that ends the whole sermon on the mount You will die and face the judgment with or without a foundation, one way or the other, and only one way or the other. And formal connection and affirmation with the mouth of Jesus is my Lord, Lord, but I have not walked in His ways and I have not turned to Him. Crash. Crash. He tells you this here. Not with hand on the scruff of your neck, rubbing your nose in it, but pleading with you now while it is still called today, saying something can be done about that right now. It is only yet pending. It has not yet struck. Today, tend to your house. If as you examine yourself, you say, in fact, I am formally connected, but I am not intimately, personally connected. The fruit in my life, the inclination of my heart, as I trace it back to see what it is, who it is, I trust, it is not Jesus. It is not the Jesus of the Bible. Then hear this, hear this. There is in this moment, right now, a hand, an offer stretched out to you that says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How? There was only one who ever perfectly did all of the word of the Father this Son. And he was buried under the flood. He was buried under the flood for you. What I'm talking about is the cross. He was crucified at the cross. Not to show us how much God loves us, though that does show us how much God loves us. Not to show us how much God hates sin, though it does show us how much God hates sin. He was crucified at the cross to become a substitute payment for you. For you. You who have rejected Him and have not kept His word, He went to the cross to pay your death penalty, to bear the flood's wrath in your place. Trust Him. How you gain Him, how you join yourself to Him, is not by attempting to do more good things. It is in fact by saying simply, Jesus, I turn to you, I surrender to you, I come poor in spirit, hungering for you, and for those who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God, the first beatitude. Place your trust in Jesus, alone, alone. He is the only ark that can carry you through the flood. He's the only foundation upon which your house can be anchored and can survive. So turn to him. And Christian. There are some of us, I think, probably, some of us who sit here and say, yeah, I I have turned to him. I know I've turned to him. And I look, I'm caught in this dilemma of My hope is in Christ and you say obedience and I am a disobedient man. That could well be. You could be a Christian and be a disobedient man, a disobedient woman. It's called sin. And if that's you, do not skip what I was just talking about, don't skip it and say, well, he was talking to the non-Christian, he's not talking to me. I'm talking to us. The cross is your only hope too. Disobedient Christian, the cross is your only hope too. Remember all that I was saying about the inclination of your heart to turn to him and say, God, help me. God, forgive me. When you in your disobedience, Christian, say this is wrong, I have set myself against you. I have turned away from you, Lord. It is wrong. And you turn back to him. What you find there is you find a God who is merciful, a Father to you of mercy, a God who is kind and in love for you, says, I forgive. And I am committed to changing you. Turn to Jesus, disobedient Christian. Find their forgiveness that wipes away all condemnation off of you. There isn't any condemnation on you. And that will empower you to walk with him. As you then in the next moment say, I will obey you. Give me power. I will obey you. Give me power. I will obey you. Change my heart and remind me of your love for me and of the coming reward. I will obey you. Change me. Change my heart. You too, disobedient Christian, you turn to Christ, your only hope. And you keep turning to Him as you step out into obedience. What God requires of us is genuine obedience. Necessary because there is a coming storm. If you're not a Christian, become one today. Today, if you are turn yet again trusting him and obeying him trust and obey there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey Jesus speaks this to you, not to get after you, but to make you happy in Jesus. To make you happy in Jesus. Put a better word on it. For your joy. Trust and obey. Let me pray. God, would you help us? Some here, perhaps, as they wrestle with and think about and examine their lives and ask, am I actually a Christian? Would you speak to them either words of clarifying comfort or clarifying conviction? Whichever is necessary. I don't know, you do. But Lord, do not, I pray that you would not allow anyone here in this room to remain only professing you as Lord, Lord, but not actually knowing you. Please don't let that remain. Would you purify this body of yours? Would you draw in more people? Those who at the moment are still outside, draw them in, give faith and save, please. Would you please, Father, by your spirit, into each one of us, because each one of us, there is no one good, no not one. We are not we are not obedient as we should be. Would you speak over your people forgiveness and empowering of our our hearts that are inclined towards but weak? Speak gracious forgiveness and press into us conviction of your love for us and of your sure promised future reward and move us then, Holy Spirit, to follow the decrees of God. Build a church, Lord, please, that is holy and therefore happy. Build a church that is like Jesus. Build a church here that loves enemies, that trusts you. Thank you, Father, for your word. By your spirit, would you press it home and build your people. Thank you, Lord. Amen.